Welcome to the Salad Days podcast, featuring interviews with your favorite artists talking about their musical origins and humble artistic beginnings. Join me, Dave Ulrich, as we travel back to the early days and hang out for a bit. Our conversation this week features special guest Peter Elkis from the excellent 90s band Local Rabbits, as well as many solo projects. And uh, before we start the show, one of the things I was going to highlight here is if you've uh, been following this podcast so far, this is episode four. And at the end, I like to stick in these theme songs from my other thing that I do, which is Lemonade Dave. And when I uh, was starting that project in Prince Edward County, I decided I wanted to have commercials or jingles, I guess you could say. And so I asked several people that I knew. The very first one was my from my friend Annalise Narana. But the second one I did was from Pete Alkis. And uh, if you listened to the very first episode with Plumtree, you would have heard that version of Pete, and I thought I'd bring it back and play it for you again here. Uh, but stay tuned for more uh, more jingles and more fun like that in the future. And again, thanks for listening. Salad days, salad days. Well, let's just start right in. So for the conversation... Uh, uh-huh. One of the first things that I always like to talk about is our one one uh, anecdote from our shared history. And, and when I thought of you, I was brought back to that time, could have been 20 years ago, um, getting on a bus uh, to go to Kingston. I had to go for a wedding, and my wife Helen went before me because she was in the in the party. And uh, so I, I was taking the bus by myself, and this bus in Toronto was jam packed, and I feel like there was one seat left beside me. Yeah. And just as we were about to go, who steps in and sits down beside me but you? <laughs> and uh, what I remember was you pulling out your CD collection and showing me a whole bunch of records that I was not familiar with. And I believe you were just about to start recording Party of One. Okay. I'm going to take a stab and say they were Bruce Springsteen records, but maybe not. Good. Yeah, true. Anyway. <laughs> no, no. It was it was more of, it was like, I would say the records were, um, you know, indicators into this, the, I would call it maybe like the soul direction or i don't even know yeah. what the word you would describe and i, I sure. just was not familiar with it and in any way i mean you know and, and i i don't think party of one was done yet and to me party of one is um you know it's it's the the direction of everything you've done since you know um coming at a local rabbits but i just uh i really remember you flipping through that cd pack you had <laughs> yeah that's funny eh? that those cd packs i can remember oh i remember that well as well and uh and i think i had one or two songs that were either in like a demo stage or some some degree of, of readiness of recording uh, the Party of One songs. Because I think I played something for you. And I always remember thinking back going like, why do you do that to people? Why would you make them sit there and listen on <laughs> beside you on a bus and uh, and then look at their face and like wait for a reaction? It's just so funny, kind of self-absorbed. I do remember it and uh, it it, yeah, I like. I think maybe I had just moved to Toronto, and I was so I had started the recording with Don. Those CD packs—that's where I was going with that. Those CD packs were really funny because it had basically they were so valuable. They had all your albums in, in there, and I can remember the local rabbits got one of those stolen. Our van got broken into in Vancouver after playing the pyramid, and it was 
so tragic because you know that was your only entertainment right you had like a disc lifeline lifelines disc man uh which was rare to begin with too even at that time plugged into the tape adapter into the crappy stereo in the cargo van and those cds were all stolen and we were crestfallen anyway it was those booklets and now you would just see those booklets on the side of the road and uh yeah that the party of one uh thing was like that was a hard shift for me in terms of like uh, confidence. Like I remember being at home in Montreal because I had just, those songs were starting to come together in the last days that I lived at my parents' house. And I lived at my parents' house probably kind of longer than other people because uh, I didn't have any money to move out because we were trying pretty hard to be, to be a touring band. And so all the free time was spent like kind of trying to go and play shows rather than having any sort of steady job. And right. uh, Ben and I were both like finishing, trying to finish university just out of obligation, you know, and to honor our, our parents as desires probably more than our own. And uh, yeah, I can remember like moving in with to my first apartment with Rob Benvy from Thrush Hermit. So Rob had had he was coming to Montreal to go to Concordia and I was I was done McGill and I was working for Nestle and selling ice cream. Yes, um, I remember that. And not like, not scooping ice cream, but I was a sales rep for Nestle ice cream division. So I was going around to all these convenience stores and grocery stores and filling their orders, which is so funny. All that work would completely be done remotely now. You wouldn't even need that guy. You would just have like the ice cream guy at the store would just probably click on what he needs, you know? Anyway. Peter Elk is the ice cream man. That's right. Yeah. So then I moved in with Ben V and that was just like the beginning of incredibly fun times for I guess 10, 11 months that we lived together uh, on Park Avenue, like Park Avenue and Bernard, which at the time wasn't yet kind of the really sweet epicenter of fun and coolness that it is now in Montreal and Mile End. That was sort of just happening, but it was a ton of fun because I was out on my own for the first time and Rob was kind of like away from home and away from his scene and trying something new. Uh, It was post-Thrush Hermit um, anyway, we were both sort of like excited and delighted to have everything feel new and, and, and stuff. And so I wrote those songs, those, those, the first batch of the party of one stuff. And Rob kind of showed me the ropes on recording and demoing. And then I, uh, at, at Don Kerr's behest moved to Toronto and he suggested, let's, uh, he said, nobody needs you selling ice cream. Like we need you playing music. So let's get, let's get the show on the road, you know? And I came so about a year later started in Toronto and I was, I had moved in with my friend, Tim McAuliffe and uh, who, you know, and, and um, yes, was involved yes. with the rabbits and was kind of like our manager. When you, when you have a friend who doesn't play guitar and you, you want them to be in the band, so you call them the manager. So he was that guy, although he did have skills in management and, and uh, went on to be great success in TV. Speaking of uh, Montreal and Toronto, just as a sort of a setup, just mm-hmm. confirm, um, tell me where you're calling from today and where you grew up. Okay. Uh, I'm calling from a phone booth. No, I'm calling from my little, uh, my home studio in, uh, in, in the West end of Toronto, kind of North, sort of nor- Northwestern part of downtown. So it's like, uh, Dav- Davenport and Symington or old Weston or Caledonia, whatever you want to call this funny area in a house, uh, that I'm lucky to have with my wife, Anissa. And we have two girls, Atia and Lena, and, uh, they're, uh, uh, nine and four respectively. And, uh, so I've got my, this, I'm, I'm calling you from my studio, which is like 
total childhood dream to have a room of my own that I could walk into and turn a guitar on 10 at any time of day. I, my dream has come true. And uh, I am from the West Island of Montreal. Did I say I'm in Toronto? Yeah, I did. So, yes, but I'm from Montreal and even then not really because real Montrealers don't consider the West Island of Montreal to be really Montreal, but it is technically the Island of Montreal. And I'm from a town called Kirkland, um, which is one of a bunch of municipalities that it makes up this West Island kind of suburbs. I was connected to Beaconsfield and Point Claire and Point Claire is where Ben Gunning and Ryan Mitral and Brian Waters and Jason Tustin were from, who are all the guys that made up the local rabbits, our first band. And uh, Kirkland was sort of like a bit of like a safer, uh, more boring, kind of more sterile sort of part of town. Like Point Claire was older and more tree-lined and near the lake and kind of a little more uh, historic. Um, Kirkland being a little bit more, I don't know, nice but antiseptic or something like that. And, and my dad was the mayor of Kirkland, which was always a badge of honor. Let's go back then to um, this conversation. I like to try to divide up into four parts. And okay. the first one... We want to go like way back to when you're, say, ten or twelve, and uh, to help help us feel what it's like to be in your house on a Friday night, maybe Saturday night, and there's something on the stove, and your family's there, and there's something cooking, and you can smell what's cooking. So uh, tell us what's on the stove, and why do you remember it so well? Well, if it's Friday or Saturday, there's a good chance that there's nothing on the stove because there would be either Kentucky Fried Chicken coming in, or <laughs> Uh, Vichy's pizza and Vichy's was the sort of like, uh, Italian place in the, in the strip mall across the way. Um, so my dad would come home, like I said, he was the mayor, but it was his only job because being mayor of Kirkland probably would pay something like $9,000 a year or something like that in those, in those times. And so about as much as I make now, but anyway, <clears throat> he, um, he had, he had many jobs. Like my dad was a kind of industrious kind of public figure type guy who, community-based, community-oriented guy. And he would come home from his job at Bell and then go to, to town hall meetings and then uh, go to other kind of like community service kind of things that he did. So he wouldn't be home for very long. So he'd come home and bring in the, the Kentucky Fried Chicken and it would be, we would eat that at the table and it, I, there would be my mom and my dad and my brother and sister. And I was the youngest by a lot. My sister was seven years older, my brother nine years older. And so I kind of would just sort of sit there probably quietly or just, you know, deferentially and, and, and eat what I loved. So like if it was KFC, I was stoked. If it was Vichy's, I was like less stoked because <laughs> I didn't love pizza. Like it was kind of one of those weird, rare kids that doesn't like pizza that much, mostly just yeah. like chicken, <clears throat> but it was a very, um, very secure and comfortable atmosphere. And Friday was probably usually better than Saturday, just because there was more anticipation for whatever was going to happen on the weekend and more distance between school and and doing homework very very late on sunday night what would a 10 year old uh 10 year old peter elkis be looking forward to on a doing on a say a saturday morning gi joe hardcore just gi joes <laughs> at 10 which also would be way after probably lots of kids would have quit playing gi joes i probably was just in the thick of it i was really loved i loved toys and i loved action figures uh and i had two friends next door neighbor was Nikki and, uh, and, uh, across the street was Mark and they played Joe's with me. And I don't know if they liked it as much as I did, but I made them like it as much as me. And Mark, Mark did like it. And the funny thing was in looking back, I remember 
I was like, oh, I was like uh, 12 probably by the time I kind of stopped playing with Joe's and I would sort of do it in secret with those guys. Cause you know, at that time <laughs> sort of probably already starting to like girls and stuff. Don't want them to know you play with GI Joe, <clears throat> but I, Mark still played and Mark was two years older than me. So that guy probably stopped playing with GI Joe at 14, which is pretty amazing. It says something about the allure of those kind of toys. I, and what I liked about it was, was uh, just the stories that you would create. Cause it was all about making the little dudes interact um, and everything that I liked was a bit like that. Like even, you know, like a little, there's not a big difference between like a little four inch guy with a gun uh, and uh, Bruce Springsteen with a guitar, you know, it's like kind of the same thing. Like the posters that I would have on my wall of like, you know, whatever sport, if there, it's a sports figure. And then all of a sudden, uh, you know, like uh, you're playing with GI Joe, you might have like a poster of James Worthy with a basketball. And then next thing you know, there's a poster of Bruce Springsteen, that iconic one with the, uh, with his Esquire from born in the USA. Yeah. Like it's yeah. the same thing. It's like a little hero with, uh, with an implement to do something, you know? And, and, uh, so that kind of, that never went away. And to this day, it's all about that. It's all about trying to be at the center of some sort of action with, with the, with your tools to make it happen. And the tools got to be kind of fun and fun to hold. It's all very like juvenile. I recall the, the use of Legos. We had an absolutely giant box of like a bin, I would call it, that would get dumped out uh, and we, I don't know how, I don't, I can't remember how old I was making stuff, but it was, I was definitely all about every single day making, creating with this. Again, I was the last of seven kids. So there was seven kids worth of Legos in this giant box. Yeah. And you had a lot of access to, to create. Um, but you know, when I, when I think of, uh, being younger and uh, I wonder if you have the same thing as, uh, for, for me, it was getting a bike it was such a big deal. Uh, getting a know, bike? Yeah. Like, uh, you know I was talking to um, Charles Austin and he was talking about stranger things being a good representation of, of that time. And, and uh, they have bikes featured pretty prominently in that show. And that's the way I remember it where um, it was a BMX bike. And it just meant that on a Saturday morning you could go, we would just yeah. go all over the place. I loved it. Did you have something like that? Yes, uh, absolutely. I had a, I had a pretty sweet little super cycle, uh, like a little yellow BMX. And, uh, but I also had a skateboard and I rode skateboard like quite like, you know, fluidly. Um, and it was totally based on Michael J. Fox from Back to the Future, which was another example of a kind of hero with a thing in their hand and his being his skateboard. Same thing. And I, why, so I, I learned to ride skateboard pretty well, not doing any tricks or anything, but I would, you know, to the point where I would like grab on the back of somebody's bike and get going or like fly down the hill and like with a lot of ease. And so that, yeah, I would take and, and just go wherever. Certainly, like you're saying, like you could get on your bike and go anywhere with with like impunity or like unfettered. You know, you just like take off. I cannot imagine letting my daughter do that now. Um, it's different, like living in the city in Toronto. Like there's the, yeah. the streets are just a little more dangerous. But um, it's funny. Yeah, that whole thing of like come home when the streetlights are on, like that freedom. I don't know. And maybe that's still out there. But what would you say the music influence was in the house was there a piano did anybody play uh what kind of stuff was on the stereo okay so as far as playing nobody really played my brother played piano he was more dutiful with his lessons and he and he had facility like it's too bad like looking back thinking about my brother was probably would have been a better musician than i am and maybe i would have been a better football player than him if i wanted to do that but that's probably not true um 
just meaning like sometimes I look and I go, maybe the roles got reversed, but he, so he would play, he did, you know, displayed some joy for the piano and he would play the entertainer and it was funny and fun. And, uh, uh, but that was about it. But for listening, music was huge. And they all like between my dad and my brother and my sister, they all liked different stuff that made a huge imprint on me. My dad would come home. He had one of those like big giant sort of Fleetwood stereos, those big wooden ones, you know, um, that my, my mom and dad bought probably in the sixties. Like my parents are 85. My dad just turned 85 yesterday. And, uh, so, you know, they kind of, they're like not, they're pre baby boomers technically. So they sort of like their musical taste is sort of almost more like fifties and early sixties and stuff based. Like it's not rock and roll. It's, uh, my dad liked we five and sort of like vocal groups and stuff like that. But he also just liked what he liked. Like if it had X factor, he liked it. So he loved Ray Charles, but kind of at the more like eighties and nineties kind of Ray Charles. And then he liked Billy Joel. Like he'd come home with a single every week, uh, and put it on that, that big giant stereo. So that kind of like set the tone. And my brother liked rock and roll, um, but not like Zeppelin and not hard rock stuff that I would like later. He liked Springsteen and Eagles and Steve Miller and kind of the roots rock type stuff that um, I like a lot. And then my sister loved R and B like tech, like uh, contemporary R and B. Like she, she loved uh, Luther Vandross and uh, Aretha Franklin is still big with her. She still loves putting that on. Uh, I mean, and Anita Baker, she liked Aretha Franklin enough too, but Anita Baker, sorry, was like her, her hero. And so I can remember like being picked up from my art, classes after school by Carrie, my sister, and she'd have that kind of R&B music in the car. And that seeped in big time too, even though that kind of music was like way less accessible in terms of being able to perform it because it's just so much more sophisticated in terms of like composition and recording. And the rock and roll stuff is uh, obviously you can kind of, you can kind of wing it, you can kind of get it with the guitar once you start learning. So you know, between the three of them, like the music was on like quite a lot and there would always be in the car, uh, like 92.9 was the easy listening station. And that had like kind of yacht rock type of vibes on it. And yeah. so like, it's funny, all, everything I think that, you, you know, I, I hope that people here in, in the music I've made, like is pretty authentic in terms of where I got it from. I was going to say that that, so that description of respectively of, of each of your, uh, members of your family, specific influences the idea that your dad was from a slightly you know whatever like a, a generation one removed i think is uh, a nice setup to to the track which we're going to play and i think that everything you just described is really reflected in not just the sort of the, the musicality and the the choices that you're making in the in this song but before mm-hmm. we do the song just one more question which is tell me about the first instrument or instruments that you got um, at a young age because i you know um and maybe these are the things that are going to be on this song that we're about to hear yeah, I uh, only really, well, it's easy. Basically, I didn't, I, I played, uh, my first instrument was harmonica. So my brother went on a funny trip to Europe with a girlfriend that he had at the time. And, and they, they won a, they won a, a door prize at a football uh, banquet. It was anywhere in Air Canada, anywhere in the world that Air Canada would fly. So he and his girlfriend went on a trip to uh, just a trip to Europe and they backpacked sort of after they were done university, but he came back from the trip with a, a tiny little harmonica, uh, honer piccolo, which is like, it's kind of rare. It's funny. I didn't know the difference at the time, but it's, it's smaller than a normal harmonica. It's not that little tiny one that people wear on a chain sometimes with four holes. It's bigger than that. It's still 10 holes. It's still like a little 10 hole diatonic, but I guess it's some sort of 
pitch up or something. It was a key of, a key of C. Anyway, I learned to play that like not too bad. And, and uh, I was already friends with Ben Gunning. So we were about 14 and Ben had a guitar and he started to learn and then he got tired of playing on his own. And so uh, we would jam together and sometimes it worked and sometimes it didn't. And it's because we didn't understand that the harmonica was not in key all the time. And then he said, okay, that's enough of that. And here's, a, I'm going to lend you a guitar. So I, the first guitar I had really was a loner from Ben, which was a nylon string uh, Goya. Yeah. And, uh, but eventually, and then other guitars kind of came and went to the house and they were always courtesy of Ben because he had like a couple. So maybe his electric would be at my house, just like old Kent and I might sort of learn it. And he showed me like the, the first, you know, three, four chords. And then after that, like I kind of, I think it was funny because my brother and my dad, like they didn't believe that I could play guitar because it kind of all happened quickly. Like there's a, you know, I'll let you in on a secret. Guitar's not that hard. Um, and so <laughs> like you, you might learn guitar in a weekend, you know, if you, if you had somebody showing you like Ben was quite a good teacher. He, he was kind of not quite the blind leading the blind, but certainly like, a hard of seeing guy leading the blind, you know? Um, and so he, he showed me stuff and we had kind of had our own lingo. Anyway, all this to say that my dad kind of like apprehensively got me a guitar for Christmas, the following Christmas. And it was a nice guitar. It was like a, it was a Fender Stratocaster, but it was a Mexican one, uh, which those cost. And by that, I mean, they're made in Mexico, still an excellent instrument, but it was, those were, they just cost a lot, lot, lot less, but I didn't yes. know that, you know? And so you wind up with this, like, black and white, uh, like white on black fender strat with like a tiny little fender amp. And I, you know, also my dad knew the guy at music circle, which was the, the store in the West Island and, uh, or music circle. We still to this day, don't know if it's music circle or music circle because of the way it was spelled. But so I had this strat and all of a sudden I felt kind of sh- ashamed of the strat because, or embarrassed, I should say, because like at school we did like a battle of the bands, or like a, we were, we had these kind of auditions for the variety show where the rabbits. Because we we became a band kind of quickly. Like I'm telling you, asked me what my first instrument was. Like this all happened at at the same time. Like I had gotten my first instruments and was already in a band because 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 Ryan and Ben were already kind of playing, and I would I would just play harmonica. Like I didn't even play guitar, and I was already in a band. And we were we were called the Rubber Band. So this is like grade nine. 14 years old and uh and we had no drummer and we played like we would play in the point claire village in front of a store on canada day or something like that and uh it was like there's only so much material we could do where ben was like okay enough with the harmonica like you got to learn some chords so anyway yeah fast flash forward not very long to me getting this strat and i can remember other kids at school who had guitars who were way better than me they had their like their honers and you know uh arias and these other kind of guitars and that were copies essentially of fenders generally speaking and then you know like oh look at elkis has got this this fender you know and it was like it wasn't really expensive guitar my dad just got me what you know what was the best thing he could get me anyway that was my first electric and then i think the song that we're going to hear was probably like a year or so later i've probably got i think i had this k like an old k a uh, hollow body electric and not like kind of a student model sort of one I'd have like, because we would jam at my house in the basement, my parents were, they were supportive in the way that they felt bad if they didn't do something, even though I didn't, they didn't really want me to pursue music without any real like music education, which I refused to get. Like we were so excited about our, just our path, the way we were learning. I didn't want to know anything from lessons or anything and neither did Ben. 
I think you've done a very good setup to the song. And here is K-Car. Okay, we've got a solid day's first. Pete has been very nice enough to provide a second song called Moonlight Bay. So we're going to listen to that one right now, and then we're going to talk about them. There's a place I know called Moonlight Bay. It's down to the North Pacific Way, where the life of the land is perpetuated. The dance and frolic is a religious alcoholic. They'll do the trick for us. I can already hear the bridal chords resonating off the string of a
Those tracks are, as I said earlier, so nicely set up by the description of all the music that was in your house. Tell us a bit about how you came to something that, again, to me is so musical for such a young age. Well, I, the, the, like a lot happened between you know just getting my first instruments and stuff, uh, between that and actually like arriving at writing songs because that was a whole other it's a, it's a whole other kind of bag of tricks there. Um, but K-Car is, it's influenced by like basically kind of three, like I can hear, when I listen to this stuff, I can hear exactly where I was, what I was into at the time. Like I was, I was in probably grade 12, uh, like first year of CEGEP, which is like in Quebec, you go to two years of after high school, of college, yep. before university. Yep. Um, and I had, I also had, I had my first car, which I, which cost the same as my first guitar. Because by this point too, I had, bought my own Telecaster, which was like to this day, still my prized possession. It was like a, you know, like a 1978 USA Fender. They were nothing to speak of at the time. Now everyone wants those. But, and then I got, I was in, into this car because my parents didn't want me to lend, they didn't want to, my mom didn't want to lend me her car. So I'd get my own. So it was this um, 1985 Brown Dodge Aries, like a K car, you know, there was Aries and Reliant. And it was the coolest thing ever, especially looking back going like that thing, so classic. It had a bench seat in the front. So like, you know, if you wanted to push it back, your passenger had to go with whatever you were, you know, if you wanted to, <laughs> if you wanted to recline the seat or like, you know, move it back for leg room, like the passenger had to move it also because it was a bench. So there was like seat belts for three people in the front in a tiny little car. So you would, you could technically sit six people in this tiny little like K car and a K car for people who don't know. It's like, if you drew a car, the first thing you would draw would look like that. It's like a little box with wheels we we also had a k car my brother had one um when i was in kingston and so toward the early days of the inbreds i was able to use the k car to uh i can recall driving it to our jam space and things like that you're right bench seat across the front you can't beat it you can't beat it yeah and some of them had like a like an armrest that would come out but then mine was pure bench like it was a couch that's it you know like no nothing no separating in the middle so much like so you like me then also put gear into the in the Aries and used it to cart your music stuff around probably right yes yes did you ever take yours on tour no we never we never did uh i for the first tour we were able to use um my father's i think it was a caprice classic basically oh, that was a the giant very, first time yeah giant car we went all the way to the west coast with the rheostatics and that oh so fun um that's the best. Yeah. A Caprice is similar in terms of like the shape and every, and the kind of design, like those kind of cars just, they don't really exist anymore. Everything is like a bubble. Everything's like a crossover style car now, right? Like a little That's right. yeah. <clears throat> truck because the rabbits, we used the K car as our first touring vehicle as well. And we would put all our stuff. If we would be able to share drums with another band, we could put the whole band and him and our amps and guitars into the trunk. Cause we use such small amps. Um, so I can remember driving to Ontario, like six dudes, and like pretty much full grown, you know, we were teenagers. Yeah, but we were large. I can just imagine what this must have looked like, you know, with the the butt end of this car dragging on the uh, on the highway. But anyway, the car was 
much like you were saying earlier about getting your first BMX and the sort of ticket to freedom, your car is like just that on steroids and then some, you know, you, the, the fact that you can go somewhere, I could go somewhere with my girlfriend and, you know, just the world's your oyster. It was beyond romantic and, and everything that I like. It's funny in talking about all this stuff, I'm really realizing like how, you know, fortunate I was and, and guys like me because and, and you that we could see ourselves in all the pop culture. Like when I say I like G.I. Joe and I like Bruce Springsteen and I loved Magnum P.I., those guys looked like me, basically. You know, it wasn't like not exactly, but you could see your you could see yourself in all yeah, those true. stories and all that TV and all those movies. And similarly, like Paul Newman and and uh, Steve McQueen and classic stars and James Dean and all these guys like when you're like a light complexion guy with brown hair, you don't understand. You take that so much for granted that you're seeing yourself reflected everywhere. And it's like permission to proceed. And when I look back, I, it's so easy now in these times to realize like how much more difficult people who don't look like that, how much more of a difficult time they would have, you know, the, inserting themselves into pop culture. There's just like hurdles there where I didn't have that. <clears throat> and so I'm really, when I look back, I'm, I'm grateful. I'm pissed off too, that there's, that's, that's the, the only way, you know, uh, or it seemed like, you know, there wasn't more, there weren't more people. Anyway, that's a whole other kettle of fish. But all I'm saying is that it, it, that's probably why, you know, I could see uh, when I watched Magnum or I listened to Bruce, like all these guys were, they, they look like me. So I could feel like, oh, I can, maybe I can do this too. It's and, funny the way uh, both Magnum, Magnum and Bruce are still reflected in your, so many elements of your persona today, whether that be, uh, you know, your uh, like, like online or photos or gags. It seems like those right. are like two touchstone characters. But I just wanted to jump back to one thing in the track, though, which is yeah. uh, you mentioned the guitars that you had and you mentioned, you know, the how things happened really quick with with Ben and everybody else. Yeah. But but in the songs, uh, particularly on the second one, I hear, you know, I, I hear harmony and I hear singing is who's playing. Is that you doing your own harmonies? Is that you playing everything? What's the actual makeup of the track? Yeah. So it is me playing everything. So this is uh, what, what we referred to as overdubs at the time. I know that's just a straight up technical term, but Ben and I would do our own recordings at home. And uh, what you would do is use two tape players. So I had a little Sony stereo. It was probably like one, like an early version of those kind of plastic component stereos. This one was not plastic. It was quite a good little stereo. Um, It was my dad's, but I just totally took it. And, uh, and it was like a metal, it was a good little Sony thing. Anyway, you could put a tape in and you could, you could record onto the tape and you could put a microphone into the mic input. And then, so you'd record something and then you could take that out, take that one tape out. And I would put it into a sports Walkman and uh, put that into play that, play that out into the, with RCAs into the back of the stereo and to the record in. And then I would put another tape. So I'd have, this is basically two tapes going, put another tape into the, stereo put the microphone in and press play on the walkman and then i would play along with the first thing that i had recorded the same exact way that all overdubbing and four tracking is done yeah whatever all recording is done and then the walkman and my new and and me would join forces and, and record onto the tape the second tape and so then you could take the tape that you just recorded the walkman and yourself onto and put that in the sports walkman and keep going and do it again and again and again. You could do it as much as you wanted, but it rapidly degenerated and sounded terrible um, if you did it too much. So this overdub, I think, has the the ones that turned out the best often didn't have too many ingredients in them because they would just they would 
it, it just wouldn't sound good. And also I didn't realize that like probably if I, I should probably record the singing last if I wanted that to be hear, heard the clearest and da da da. Anyway, so this is me in a sports Walkman with the K, the K uh, guitar and then probably also the K, like playing maybe a, acoustic. Like I had an acoustic guitar too. And my dad had got me this uh, Martin copy uh, and it was, it was a good, you know, acoustic guitar to have around. And so it's probably that. And then the, the K electric through like a little pig nose amp which, you know, was like in, in uh, Crossroads with Ralph Macho. Right. Another thing that I loved, uh, another guy like that looked like me with a guitar, like, you know, same, all that stuff was so everywhere. And and in that movie, he gets his electric guitar and then the guy says, hey, here's a pig nose amp. He's, it's like a, yeah, he's like, I'm like a walking concert. And that would always be the joke. But those amps were really cool. And that was also how I listened to music in my K car because my K car didn't have a tape player. So I would listen, the sports Walkman, I would put beside me coming out of the amp in my car when I was driving along. So I would, I would listen to probably like pretty distorted, distorted music coming out of the thing. And the tapes that I had were like darkness on the edge of town, uh, thrush hermit, smart bomb, uh, because we had already kind of made inroads with murder records. Like that's how early all that stuff happened too. It was yeah. like 17, 18. Yeah. And I was obsessed with like smart bomb and, uh, the other one, John Boomer, you know, and those kind of tapes and also Al Tuck's, um, Brave uh, Last Days, Brave Last Days, which had that yeah. first track yeah. at Last, la- Last Stand, what is it? Last Stand El Strato? Um, yeah. I can't yeah. remember right now. Yeah. But that first track <clears throat> was like, those, those few things, like you're, I was so spongy, like everybody is, I think at that time. And so impressionable by spongy, I mean, impressionable that like every new little thing that came in that felt like my own little discovery uh, made its way rapidly into my uh, music, my way of thinking, my way of behaving, what I would wear, everything. So like meeting Thrush Hermit, like the the way that those guys wrote songs and and Al Tuck, like the way that he would write, that stuff made it in there um, so quickly and was such a huge influence. And Ry Cooter was really big, like the first Ry Cooter album, the, the, the self-titled one. And then Springsteen, but Springsteen, I love so much too, but he was also like, it was less accessible, similar as I was saying about the R&B, my sister, like it was more mysterious. Like I didn't know how to make that music when you listen yeah. to Born to Run. It's not, you can't just, you could try to pick up your guitar and play like the singing, maybe the the lyrics, yes, and stuff. But even then I couldn't sing like that. I was a pretty terrible singer. So it had to be like, you know, you gravitate towards like punky and rough and blues. And I loved blues. So all that was a, about kind of, Anything I could do right away, I was into. So, you know, and if you made a stew that had very few ingredients in it, you would taste them easily. So I think that's kind of what, why I hear, when I hear this stuff, I go, oh, it's, it's like a bitter icooter. It's like Nebraska. It's like the song Open All Night on Nebraska, Springsteen's album. And, uh, you know, and I hear like funny stuff about my car and it just sounds to me like who, like what I was like at the time and what I miss, what I hear in that song in the K cartoon is, and the Moonlight Bay one too is, is um, jokes. Like it, there's, there's yeah. humor happening. Yeah. And um, that's something I think kind of got jettisoned for whatever reason. Like it's, everything became kind of more for me, like more sincere, more earnest and trying to, cause there wasn't a ton of jokes maybe in like some the songs that I really wanted to do. But when I hear this, it kind of it, it makes me happy to hear that I was including a sense of humor because that was so much a big part also of, of what, was going on with me and my friends at the time as well. So I kind of, I go, where did that go? You know, um, like it's, it's, it's not tongue in cheek, but having a song called K car and this, and the, 
the chorus is get in my K car. Like that's the, it's, it's a bit of a joke, you know, but even though it's, it's still got the edge and the rock and everything anyway. And then the other one, I liked Hawaiian music too. Like I had these two Hawaiian records that just had these old Hawaiian songs on them. So that kind of like keyed into like, Oh yeah, the Magnum PI stuff that I always loved. And, and that song is so long, Dave is seven minutes long or longer. <laughs> and so I had to like pick, I wanted to hear the very beginning cause it sort of sets it up, but then I did an edit so that you could, it could just play out the end the last. So it would be like two or three, I think it's still three minutes long, but like it, there's other verses that talk about like, we'll go to the King Kamehameha club and Rick will give us a long neck Dusseldorf, like Rick from Magnum. And he old Dusseldorf in a long neck was what Magnum drank. Like this like fictitious beer that he drank (laughs) stuff like that. So it's, it's funny. It's all there. And then, like you said before, like that's, I still cling to those things uh, for better or for worse. I think like, I kind of do it as a, as a joke to myself to just sort of go like, I'm still, these are the only things I like Magnum PI and Bruce Springsteen. It's like, it's, not true, but I think it's funny and fun to sort of pretend that that is the only thing that informs my my uh, being. But anyway, I don't know. Okay, well, the um, two concepts that you mentioned in there, I'm going to call them speed and sponge. Uh, you, you know, in the music, we hear the things that you sort of soaked up and were reflected in what you played. And then you talked about speed, meaning just uh, between the connections that were coming with uh, Murder Records, Halifax, you know, even how quickly you got together with, with Ben and Ryan and everything. Uh, it, it's a good segue to the third part of the conversation. I call it music becoming real. Mm-hmm. And I'll start with a, a story from that kind of connects uh, the two bands, if not the two of us, which is uh, we were, had the chance to play Opera House, a big Christmas show. I remember whatever year that was, it could have been 94, 95. And there was bands like Hayden was on the bill. I believe you guys were on the bill. You were on the bill, and we were, and, yeah. and Thrush Hermit was on the bill. And a thing from to, to that to this term of music becoming real. So in some of the other uh, conversations I've had, I've talked about different things that pop to mind. But when I think of you, I know that we, again, it's not just that we met, uh, but also that that was one of the first times that the Inbreds played the song "Any Sense of Time," mm-hmm. where we got a very specific kind of feedback that night, like is to the effect of that song is going to be your song. It was wow. the first time we ever heard it. And so you could make the case maybe that, maybe in my mind anyway, the number of times we heard it and the way we heard it was that music became real that night when we played that song. But cool. I really remember watching you guys and watching, I believe that was the first time I ever saw the the, the gag where um, uh, Joel pulls you out of the crowd and you did the the, uh, the dance, the Springsteen dance. You know, uh, <laughs> I'm pretty sure that was the first time I ever saw that. So that was, what are your memories of that night? Uh, that was called the grunge who stole Christmas, right? The, that was, the, yeah, that uh, sounds right. The name of the show. I don't have like very, uh, vivid memories. Uh, yeah, I would have remembered who's on the bill like you did. I, I can I just remember, remember thinking, yeah. you guys seemed so young. There was a, un, there was a, you know, under the basement of that was where the green room was. And I can remember you guys, you're almost like bonking your head on the ceiling and you, you just seemed so unbelievably young and yeah you were just full of energy, like compared to anyone there, we were all pretty young, but you guys really had a certain energy to you, all of you. And it was uh, very, very memorable. <laughs> well, I, yeah, I, we were very energetic. And at those, in those times, uh, our drummer was still Brian Waters, who was uh, really kind of pretty integral to that energy that you're talking about in terms of like trying to have 
not trying, just having fun and inserting ourselves into every situation we came, came upon. And so I do, I totally remember hanging out in the basement there um, and having fun. And I also remember, I think I tried to stage dive uh, <laughs> when someone was playing. Like we had no qualms. We could have called our band No Qualms instead <laughs> of Local Rabbits. So I had no qualms about just going on stage when someone else was playing. And I jumped into the, to the audience. And I remember I had this cowboy hat that had been my uncle's. And I was wearing that. And that was part of the thing too, was just like, try to stick out. And it wasn't like a strategy or anything. It was just what we were like. Um, and so wearing a cowboy hat was kind of, wasn't common or anything. It was, and I just thought it was a fun hat. And I, I remember I, I dived into the crowd and the kind of head first and sort of bonked my head <laughs> into people. Like I didn't really get caught. Like I didn't know how to do it or anything, you know? And it was embarrassing and hurt. And like that, uh, that's the feeling I would leave those situations a, a lot with would be like embarrassed and hurt. Also running into a young woman who said, local rabbits, yeah, we have a club. It's called I Hate Local Rabbits. And, (laughs) and yeah, and she even had like a little pin, like a, that said it on it. And I was like, what? But she was telling it to me in a way where she thought I should enjoy it. And so I kind of did because I caught her meaning and I was just like, that's hilarious, whatever. (laughs) Uh, But I, I also was like, why do you hate local rabbits? Anyway, yeah, I remember that. Okay, so so in this again in this section, uh, the, this concept of music becoming real, it's particularly relevant for somebody like yourself. I mean, in my mind, not only have you made a life in music, you've had all these different stages, and I know that you've even reflected in some of your lyrics about the idea that you know, like essentially, like is it going to work? You know, does my family want me to do this? It's all these sort of complicated things. But you really, it, to this point, you've you've made a life in music, and there's much more to come. But what was the point in the past you know since since those days on the west island is there a point where you you really thought to yourself like something clicked like this is something i'm going to do and what is that moment do you think um well i mean there's certain there's different ones like in terms of musically when did something like you know when you talk about a song like any sense of time such a actual good song um you know like that's a those are turning points like where you go musically, I'm, I'm, we're doing this like creatively, this is actually something. So there's probably ones and they would maybe be more like moments on stage where I felt in the, in the rabbits where there was something happening that actually was having impact in a way that wasn't just like, who are these goof goofs? I'm going to remember these guys because they're insane. There's that, but there's like, I'm going to remember this because it was music, musically badass. And I can remember one rabbit set, out in Vancouver and we didn't have time to load in. It was like some afternoon all ages show at the, at the brick house, I think. And, um, and we didn't have time to load in or, or real estate on stage to have our big keyboard, uh, big roads, much like the one that you've, uh, lent to me that I'm looking at right now. Um, (laughs) uh, and it, uh, so we just had to do a guitar set. And I remember we just did kind of like our heavier stuff, including this tune of Ben's, um, called, well, they were all, all, those kind of tunes were all bends. And we did this one called, uh, stomp your BKs down, which is like a ode to, uh, heavy metal acts. And it had weight to it. That was like pretty obvious where the crowd was like into it in a way that, you know, we didn't always kind of get that sort of respect. So I can remember that for some reason. And then when I started going on my own, like, you know, and I made the first solo album, 
was not really intended to be a solo album. I was just kind of writing songs, uh, always writing songs, thinking there would be local rabbits records. And then it was apparent for one reason or another that we weren't going to do one. And so when I did that, the first, when it came out and I think that song party of one to me, the way it, the way it came together, uh, even just probably sitting in the studio with Don Kerr and realizing like, well, this is something I can kind of hang my hat on this sort of sound. Yeah. Um, and I can kind of go forward with this and maybe, maybe be recognized just from listening, you know, not, not the whole thing of being uh, energetic and goofy and whatever. And this can, this, maybe this song can actually do something on its own. And so, you know, but then you, and then you get that kind of feedback in terms of like at those times, there's no internet didn't have a huge impact yet on music. Um, so it was still like the, the published weeklies and magazines and stuff. So then I was featured on the cover of I magazine, which was a weekly at the time, right? You had now and I, Yep. And that was shortly after moving to Toronto and just putting that record out. And, and so that felt like some recognition in those days. Like I've never, like I've, I, I got a, a funny sort of joke award from the CBC, um, which I treat like a Juno. Um, and, uh, <laughs> but then like at those times too, like getting the covers of magazines, those were sort of our awards, right. In the, in the indie scene, like if you got a cover, yeah. I can remember the rabbits getting the cover of the mirror rabbits getting cover of, uh, we had I, and then like, other ones, you know, and I've, I've got them. My dad would always like laminate them and stuff, but then getting one on my own, uh, for, for the party of one record that sort of felt like, okay, this is maybe going to go somewhere or, you know, it's just going to, it'll be established somehow, but moreover, I don't feel like that. Like I still, to this day, I just kind of feel like it. I I don't know. I, I feel like a bit of imposter syndrome, a bit of fraudulence, a bit of not success. I do other stuff to make ends meet, I had some years together where I just played music and in those years played, did like session stuff too. And I was playing with Joel Plaskett and his band. And that was hugely important to my learning, my exposure to people, to the industry and development as a musician and learning how to do like to be a proper sideman and how to accompany someone and support somebody and listen properly. Uh, so like, I don't know, everything kind of feels like, I don't know, time waits for no man. So it, when next thing you know, you look back in the mirror and you have all these experiences that you've racked up. Do I feel like, I, I don't really feel like a, like it's, I don't feel super successful through like a big broad lens. But when I, if I look at little different areas, I do totally feel successful. And like Springsteen being my huge hero, like I've, I've met Bruce a bunch of times and I've been on stage with Bruce. Like I'm looking at this picture right now that has, that somebody took and put up for auction in New Jersey. And it's, it's this guy, John Cavanaugh took this picture and it's got, I still keep the label on it because my friend bought it for me at the auction and he sent mm -hmm. it to me and he said, look what I got for you. And it's this like kind of blown up photo and it's, it's got me, Willie Nile, uh, Joe Grusecki and Bruce Springsteen all playing on stage. And I've actually got a guitar Amazing. strapped on in this. Like the story is long and boring to tell you how I got there. And it is just like a charity event kind of thing. But, you know, uh, Bruce has watched me play. He's given, you know, he, he, he went out into the audience to watch me play like two songs solo in front of a curtain at an event and then came back and told me I sounded good. Like those kind of things. I think for most people ha having that happen to you would, would kind of inspire you and, and, uh, light a fire and you'd, you'd go, okay, now let's do it. It had like a weird opposite effect for me. It like checked a box 
<laughs> it sort of made me like put my feet up a little bit uh, creatively. There's other things. There's so many things to point to where there's kind of been like a like a slowing down in terms of output. Um, and I still have new songs that I'm working on right now and hoping to do uh, a new record. Uh, you know, but it's, I don't know. Um, I don't know what I'm trying to say. It's just like, I feel great when I look back and it's also, uh, anytime anybody wants to ask me questions about it, like today, uh, that's an honor, you know, to be able to talk about it. And I do realize like, it's rare too, because the way that you and I came up playing music and, and our, the way that we had our experiences in our musical life <clears throat> is vastly different from the way that people are doing it now. You know, you'd have to, even just to get your, your music recorded and out, like if you were, when CDs came about, you know, to have your music on a CD, like you, you had to run a certain gauntlet to be able to get there. Like it meant that you had to practice, you had to be in a studio, you had to like book studio time, record it in a studio, like have whoever owned the studio deem you worthy to, to have it, whether it was that you had the money or the skills or whatever. And then somebody had to pony up dough to make the CDs. It was expensive to manufacture things. And you were probably only going to manufacture those if it meant that you had some form of distribution. And if it, even if that was only just putting your stuff in the store on consignment, you had to go around and do that, go yeah. to stores and put them in there and do, do legwork. And then, you know, that usually meant that it's because you wanted to play live. So you were going to be going around and trying to convince promoters to let your band play live or convince bigger bands to let you open and like, like the time big sugar allowed the local rabbits to open, which I think to this day is to Gordy's chagrin that he did that. But, um, <laughs> and then like the, you know, to convince like Sloan to sign a, your band to, to murder records and then be out there. Like it was so, there was so much work, much like sound like, you know, having to go around and take the orders for the ice cream. The now people don't need that. Like you can just, you, you, I could sit here today and make a whole record today if I wanted and just press a button on DistroKid and put it up there and put it out. And not to say that that's bad, but it takes away all that stuff, all that work. And it sort of negates it in a way, you know, like where that, like when I look back at my life, my, if I, if I look at a musical life, that's most of it is like running all that gauntlet just to get the music out. And so for today, for all that to just kind of be like, well, you don't have to do any of that. It's like, well, th but that is the thing. That's the, that's the life. So, you know, I, I don't know. Um, I'm so happy when I look back and go, I made music like pre-internet. It makes you feel, it makes you feel much more connected to, makes me feel much more connected to the things that influenced me. Yeah. I, I think today probably people go like, oh, Led Zeppelin is so great. Fluid Mac. Like you're not going to be able to kind of share the fundamentals other than just learning, like crafting your music, yes. But in terms of like, you know, you can still people go around and travel around and make music and that. But, you know, when you look at like the significance of like a poster, uh, someone designing a poster, printing the poster, putting the posters up, uh, sending, just mailing them to whomever and then you, making sure that they get up and get out there. Like now is you throw something together pretty quickly and easily with the magic of, of computers and press a button and it's everywhere. I don't know. I think I, I could go on and on about that, but I, but um, it's weird to kind of go like, well, the stuff that I did kind of doesn't matter anymore in terms of that. So that that's, that's weird, but I do, I feel successful when I look through all these little mini lenses, like I was saying, and, and it mostly like the, all that stuff fortified really, really important friendships. And uh, that's stuff that people 
don't can't who don't play music can't relate to you know yeah and it's i think you know that i mean you're doing this podcast probably for that reason because you you're highlighting the stuff that matters uh it's not just nostalgia you know it's uh it's talking to people about stuff that uh, probably matters a lot to them and it goes on and on like i you know I, I make music in this studio and i recorded an album for an artist named danny nash in the pandemic and it was like one of the best musical experiences I've ever had. And it was so much more about getting to know her and becoming friends than it was even about the music. Like the bonus was that the music is fantastic. It's like my favorite record I've ever worked on. Um, but, uh, you know, you, you come for that and you leave with a friend like that's that that is exactly why I showed up, you know, is to do that. Like I only wanted to be friends with Ben so that you know, I learned guitar because I wanted to be his friend, you know, we were into comics and stuff and it was like, Oh, I guess we're into guitar now. I have to learn guitar, you know? So the next thing now, you know, you that, can, that's you, actually a really good segue to you now you, you covered so much good stuff uh, in the conversation up till now. So usually the, the fourth part is what I call flash forward where we just go. Now let's talk about the projects that you're doing now. Um, yeah. Let's talk about family life updates. These are some things that you've already covered. Uh, brushes with greatness, obviously. I'm going to put Bruce Springsteen right in that <laughs> in that pile. But uh, a running theme through the conversation is friendships. So, as it relates to flashing forward to today, the point I was going to highlight was that what I've always found with not with you and with the local rabbits is the fact that you guys came out of of, of a friendship of a bunch of young guys in high school. And that's something we have in common where Mike and I were, you know, we met in grade 10 and we're, I think people could probably tell that we had a kind of a friendship that went back. And you guys, not only do you, did you have that when I first met you and, every, and we toured together and, and did all this stuff, which actually maybe we need to go to that. I wouldn't mind telling that one story of the one of our tour, but maybe we'll come back. So, uh, but I, to the point of friendship as it relates to, that it shows, it shows musically, it shows when you do an interview, it shows when people meet you. Local Rabbits really had that. And what I was hoping you could tell is the story uh, that, uh, so on the Music Buddy podcast, uh, Ryan told the story of your first and last show with the Local Rabbits. Yeah. Uh, do you do you remember that? And if you, can you do your, I'd like to hear your version of that story. Um, okay. I can almost guarantee that it'll differ somewhat from Ryan. I find like a lot of the time okay. we'll, we'll start going down memory lane and I'll go like, remember? And then, and then he'll be like, no, that's, it wasn't that it was this. Like for instance, just really quickly, the first time the local rabbits ever went anywhere, we didn't even come to play a show, but we went as a, as a group on the bus from Montreal to Toronto to come to Canadian music week to just sort of hand out our first EP on CD. Yeah. And, um, and we stayed at the Sheridan Hotel, and uh, I just stayed there over March break for an, to have a staycation night with my family, and we swam in the same pool. And the pool is fun because it goes it's indoor-outdoor. So even in winter, you can swim outside because it's heated. So it was winter during Canadian Music Week. It was probably March, April or something. And then and uh, we are swimming outside, and Brian Waters was there, and we were goofing around. It was like nighttime. And Brian went under the water, and he, and he comes up, and he's – He's going to body slam Ryan. He's going to come up and power slam him, like lift his whole body up. Brian was quite powerful and lift his whole body up and slam him down. So he comes up, rah, slams Ryan into the water and, and it's not Ryan. 
and it's it's this guy it's just this it's just this adult you know like this guy who's there swimming and it was too funny and and you know mortifying and everything and luckily like the guy forgave him easily but it was just so hilarious to just power slam a stranger by accident and then so I was, I was just recently because I went, because it was because I went to the hotel with my family. I was telling Ryan about it and re- saying, remember when Brian power slammed that guy? He was like, it wasn't the guy. It was his wife. I was like, what? <laughs> he was like, no, you power slammed the guy's wife, <laughs> which makes the story way better. But also I'm pretty sure it's wrong. I'm, I'm almost positive it was the dude, not the, not the wife. That just that to say that it wouldn't surprise me if this story that I'm about to tell would be different. So the first time the local rabbits ever jammed together, it was at Ben's house in the basement and we played a bunch of songs and I just played guitar. I mean, sorry, I just played harmonica. Ben was on guitar, Ryan on bass and, and Ben's dad, uh, Dickie Joe on, on the drums. And he was quite a good drummer and quite a good, you know, good, uh, influence and, uh, and, uh, supporter. And so we were playing a bunch of different songs and the uh, no, but sorry, but the first song that we ever played together was "Rock and Roll" by Led Zeppelin. So that was yep. the first song that yep. we ripped into, and um, you know, I stood there like a goof and played harmonica. I don't didn't even sing. Ben was doing all the singing and playing. Flash forward through all the stuff. Brian leaving the band, Murder Records, touring, opening for Sloan everywhere. Um, you know, crossing Canada, going on Edge Fest, Ben high fiving. Uh, you know, sitting in a hot tub at the in the backstage of Edgefest, high fiving um, the guy from the Tea Party as he walked past. Nice, you know, all that stuff. Like, really, tons of insane times to finally going on our final tour, which we didn't know would be the last one. And the first time we we toured, we went to the East Coast, and this this tour was similar. And we went in a little. We'd had like all these different vans and school buses and stuff, and this we didn't have any of that anymore. And we had to rent a little minivan to go and do our final tour. And it was like a little Astro van, which was the same kind of van that we went off on our first tour. And we played um, this place in St. John, New Brunswick. I'm trying to remember the name of it. I, it doesn't matter. Um, but you you went into the bar and then you had to kind of go through another doorway to a second bar to watch music. So you could be in the bar and not pay cover and not watch the music. Like cause you had to pay cover when you went into the second bar. So that right. meant that like, not only were there very few people in the bar, there were even fewer people in the actual room where we were playing. So there were two dudes in there watching us and we were playing tunes. And it was like one of those gigs where this was the final gig of the tour. And we playing to two guys. And uh, after all that time and all these albums and all this effort, uh, we're playing to these two dudes and we're, and then we just start kind of playing whatever, not even really to amuse ourselves. It was more almost like, almost a bit like kind of, kind of giving up a little bit. Like we even went into like a John Cougar Mellencamp song. Like it's not even stuff that we really like. We were just sort of throwing our hands up a little bit. And then we, and we were good, you know, like we could, we, by that point we could really play well and Jason Tustin on the drums and everything. And, and then we, we go into rock and roll by Led Zeppelin. And then the sound man's voice comes over the monitors, which are the speakers, you know, that you hear yourself through on the stage. And he goes, okay guys, that was it. That was it. That was your last, that was your last song. Like what? So not even usually you get like a one more song kind of warning. This was just like no more songs, right? Uh, play zero more. And then, and so it's like, Oh, okay. And then we packed up our stuff, went home, never played together together again as a band. We, we, we did one time later. I almost wish we didn't cause it spoils the story a bit, but like 
we never really to any degree played together again to any important degree. And, and so the, the, the last song we ever played together was rock and roll by Led Zeppelin by accident. And it was the first song we ever played together was rock and roll. Amazing. By Led uh, ultimate bookend. I mean, one of the, one of the reasons I like that story just generally is it, it just brings all these elements of, of you guys together and then the poetic uh, kind of justice, but it also, it's another story that I mentioned in previous conversation uh, that the high school band that Mike and I had, it was called the fresh steaming turds. And we played, <laughs> we played the high school uh, battle of the bands and we won, but awesome. it was comprised of, a, it was a three piece, Mike, myself and our friend Derek. And we got a chance to choose. Um, and we got a four song. I think it was four songs, but we, we each got to choose a song. And what I remember is, how, how it reflected what we were into at that time. So, so, um, you know, Mike chose you too, Derek. Uh, well, De- one of Derek's was, um, um, ZZ top. And then I chose rock and roll by Led Zeppelin. Yeah. And that was the song that we, we played. It was the, it was such a big deal because we were just kind of like nobody, nobody knew that we played music. I think we were just out of nowhere and we ended up winning. And, but I do have, uh, fond memories of playing rock and roll and I even have some there's some vhs video somewhere that awesome. we have that but all i wanted to say was okay so let's go to the very last question here and often i try to end it with sort some sort of uh where i'm almost like egging you to to bring a life lesson in so i'm going to challenge you to try to end this story with a life lesson somehow but <laughs> God, okay. all i wanted to mention was the this final tour that we did or not final tour the tour that we had a chance to go out together. Um, yeah. Local rabbits and the inbreds. We went all the way from Toronto all the way west. And one of the things about touring is it's often in the winter. And you guys had a van uh, yeah. that I recall had very bald tires on it. Yes. Because it was summer tires and they were probably super bald. And, you know, we're going through the through the uh, the mountains. And you'd get warnings. This is pre-internet, pre-phone. I guess on the radio, they would tell us that there was sort of a snow warning. And so we had enough time that we had, we could pull, pull over. We were We would have had to stay somewhere anywhere, but I remember we pulled over like really early at five o'clock or something like that in golden BC. And somebody from your side uh, came up with the brilliant idea to make essentially like a stand up comedy night. Um, <laughs> give yeah. me your memories of that night. And like I said, see if you can bring a, a life lesson uh, to, to sort of wrap, wrap up uh uh, the the experience of maybe even just the experience of, of of touring in Canada or or making the best of it I think is maybe what this story is about. Okay, uh, well, there's a couple of things I want to mention. I'm not sure what order to do it in, but yeah, because this yeah okay. So at the motel in Golden, uh, there was our band and the people were me, Ben Gunning, Ryan Mitchell, Jason Tustin, and then in your band was Mike O'Neill, you, but you also had uh, Matt, uh, uh, Matt Kelly, Matt Kelly on the guitar. Cause you guys were doing stuff from the record that had like a little bit more instrumentation. So you had right. a, yep. a third inbred for the tour and, and, uh, Matt, uh, God love him. He's such a brilliant musician and really swell guy. He, I think he was probably having a bit of a tricky time sort of feeling like, like fitting in socially because he was trying to fit into pretty set dynamics, you know, and stuff like that. But anyway, so this is, I just, I remember him because I remember what the game we were playing, which is so excellent that like you would, no one would ever do this anymore because they'd all, everyone would be on their phone um, unless they'd be filming it. And even then there'd For be sure. like some, some other like twisted 
end game to post it on social media, you know, that would kind of ruin the spirit of it. But we were just doing this, this game just for ourselves to keep ourselves entertained. And we would do this in the van. I don't know if we invented it on the tour, but it was just called stand up comedy. And, and the thing was you, we definitely had done it before because we had a different van that I remember doing it in. And all you would do is like, you'd be given a topic and you had, and you'd say, okay, and, and go like, right away without any any time to prepare whatsoever you had to do an improv like a stand-up comedy set based on the topic that you were given and the only goal like the 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 only reason the only uh kind of impetus to do it uh would be because you would eventually laugh at someone else doing it so it was basically like trying to do your best stand-up comedy on a moment's notice with a topic and it was surefire gonna bomb so it was bombing and get, and allowing everyone to feel the cringy effect of your bombing yes. just so that you could watch someone else do it. So just like cringe fest, you know? And so I can remember what I remember about that was like, there would often be a lot of setups to no punchlines because you don't have time to really write the joke. So it'd be like old people go, you know? And I remember, uh, like, that's exactly remember. what I did. I can remember doing that exact setup. I created a, char- <laughs> I created a character because because I I couldn't think of the joke, so I, I thought of the character first. Of like it was like tired guy. I think was what I tried to do. Tired, tired guy. guy, right? Yeah, 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 yeah. Because it was sort of like a uh, who's that guy? Uh, oh God, you know the guy who's very monotone. Stephen Wright is that his yeah, name? Stephen Wright, yeah, um, that sort of thing. And then uh, Ryan would do. Ryan had an Australian guy that he did right or something. Yes, yes. Australian accent. But uh, I can remember O'Neill having one of the only punchlines because he's quick. Uh, he was like, it was like old people go, you know, and he was like. I mean, old people in their, in their track suits, you know, uh, where's my mom going in a track suit? All she's got to do is run and make me a sandwich. Um, <laughs> you know, and like, <laughs> and like, you know, he's coming that up with that off the top of his dome. And, uh, anyway, so really funny game. And I remember Matt Kelly, poor, sweet, God love him, Matt Kelly. He ran away. Like he just, he, I think he yeah. did one yeah. and it was, it was cringy in a way that like did it. It was like beyond the, the cringe we were looking for. And then, he was like, I got to go, you know, and he just like, he split and uh, went and found a payphone to call his girlfriend on or something, but which, you know, <laughs> it's probably a better use of his time. Um, and then, so that was super funny and fun. But what I remember very much so, I think was when it was after this was later on, or it might've happened before because we carried on, but basically because of the van with the ball tires, which was a van that belonged to our friend, Will Richards uh, in Montreal, he rented it to us. Um, we didn't even bother. We just needed a van so badly to get on the road. We didn't look at the tires, probably wouldn't have wanted to change them even if we knew. Um, but I was driving and we just, we went flying off the road. There was just, there was black ice everywhere and, um, and it just kind of popped up out of nowhere. And I can remember seeing that sort of sheen off the highway and I think we were close to Moose Jaw. So like if the stand-up comedy was in Golden, I guess, was that after or before? Because were we on our way out in golden when we, when we did the comedy stuff? Yeah, we were on the way out. Yeah. Okay. So then we must've wiped out. Cause I remember wiping out around moose jaw and it was just this thing where the van started swaying. And I said kind of ominously, like, this is it. Here we go. And the guys were like more freaked out by me saying that than like the van actually flying off the road. And then <clears throat> because of the way we had all our gear sort of bundled up in the back, like we had it tied to the back and, and it was so that like somebody, you could lie down on the floor which is so dangerous because the gear could just like fall over and crush the guy on the floor. Um, but I guess because of some sort of centrifugal force, the the van, like the gear stayed at the back, 
while the van was spinning out. So we were spinning and spinning and spinning and went flying off the road, but it being the, the prairies was fairly flat. So we just wound up off the road and, uh, we got out of the van and I remember Ben and I like gave each other a hug and I don't think we'd ever hugged until then. That was the yeah. first time. <laughs> and, and then some guys came along and like, you know, kind of guys that come out and they start pushing. It's like, give her shit, you know? And then like, like get it off the road and just carried on. There was no, who knows what damage that did to the vehicle too. But like, we just carried on and, uh, it was, uh, rather freaky. Um, and that, that a little kind of motif of that scenario wound up being the album cover for our, last album yeah i didn't realize that was where that name came from great yeah i know yeah it's probably the best one i guess but um kind of a funny uh depressing album cover i guess but so my life lesson would be is just that starting a band is the best and worst idea you could ever have so beware that was a taste of the song cinder bridge from pete's last album called the lion ep and earlier in the show we heard the songs k car and moonlight bay from the teenage uh, peter elkis amazing tracks and as we round out the show here i just want to highlight one thing about pete which is that you really need to see uh, peter elkis live if you've never had the chance um just an amazing command of the guitar great band great singer and um if you can do one thing, go see Pete live. If you like this podcast, be sure to subscribe, like, and tell all your best music-loving friends about it. Today's episode was brought to you by Zunger.com and me, Lemonade Dave. I've done a lot of things in music over the years, but these days, I mostly make bottled lemonade by hand in Prince Edward County. I'm going to crack a cold one right now. But if you're ever in PEC, be sure to ask for it by name and tell them Dave sent you. Dave had it made Sitting Without the trouble of drinking drinks and shots and doubles, he said, Hark, I'll make it sparkle. And he added stuff to make it bubble. Lemonade, babe. like the sparkling lemonade. If it's hot, I'll 
it's not all. Get a bottle, that is.